Hello everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Fred Newlander, an inspirational rabbi who was a pillar in a South Jersey Jewish community. Well known and revered in their town, the Newlander family ushered in a new engaging area for local followers of the faith. People knew of Fred's influence even if they weren't Jewish, he was just that prevalent in the area. But for a man standing atop a mountain of respect and adoration, his fall from grace was even more devastating and disturbing because he decided to take a page from Robert O. Marshall's book. But before we get started, let's listen to today's terrifying tidbit. Spiritual abuse is defined by WebMD as any attempt to exert power and control over someone using religion, faith, or beliefs. Any type of religion can be used for spiritual abuse, and it can happen in conjunction with other types of abuse as well, such as child and elder abuse. Religious abuse often happens in places of worship and is characterized by the use of scripture beliefs to belittle or humiliate you, making you feel pressured to do something because a higher power wants you to, and being coerced into performing certain acts or giving money or other services that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. Although I'm not totally certain that any spiritual abuse occurred in the story, I think it's an important topic to consider when dealing with anyone in a position of power in a religious or really any kind of institution. Religion can provide a wonderful support system and a guide to living life in accordance with the higher power, but it can also be twisted into something much more manipulative and harmful. Our story takes place in Cherry Hill, which is located in Camden County. Cherry Hill is the most populous town in the county with about 74,000 residents. It's arguably one of the most notable towns in South Jersey, excluding Camden and, you know, obviously the shore. Cherry Hill gets an A-plus rating on Niche.com, which is something I don't think we're going to see very often on this podcast. Not because I think awful things don't happen in nice towns, but how many towns have you visited that you felt deserved that kind of grade? Over three-quarters of the residents own their own homes and have at least some college education. Cherry Hill is one of the wealthier towns in the area, with a median household income of $107,000 a year. There are plenty of things to do there, it's very diverse, and you can find just about any cuisine within the town limits. An important part of Cherry Hill is its established Jewish community. They are one of the few towns in the area whose schools take off for Jewish holidays. It's not uncommon to be invited to a bar, a bat mitzvah, or to see men wearing yarmulkes, and there are at least 11 places where you can get kosher-certified food. There are a number of synagogues, and many people belong to a JCC, or Jewish Community Center. This is all to say that Cherry Hill was the perfect place for the Jewish Newlander family to put down some roots. Fred Newlander was born August 14, 1941. In the early 1960s, he was a student at Trinity College in Connecticut, and his future wife, Carol, stayed at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts. The two met on a blind date and hit it off instantly. A few years go by, they get married, and they have three children, two sons and a daughter. Fred worked as an assistant rabbi at another temple in Cherry Hill called Temple Emmanuel. Then, in 1974, Fred and nearly 20 other members formed Makor Shalom, which means source of peace in Hebrew. Makor Shalom quickly became the largest reformed congregation in South Jersey with over a thousand members, catapulting Fred and Carol into local celebrity status. The two suddenly became very prominent and admired. Congregants said that Fred had this presence, like he was a natural-born spiritual leader. They loved Fred because although he was very well versed in the morals and teachings of the faith, he was casual, young, and up to date because he was only about 33 at the time. This was in stark contrast to the austere and very to-the-book leadership that most people were used to. Fred would say, call me Fred, not Rabbi. He interacted with all types of people and even in support groups for people with alcohol and drug addictions. He was known to be personable and approachable by everyone. Carol also had a glowing reputation. Similar to churches, Carol had that first lady status that pastor's wives typically have. She's described as a straight-talking woman who spoke her mind and got the job done. 
Her friends and neighbors knew her as a giving and caring person. She loved to bake and actually owned two bakeries, one location being Classic Cake in Cherry Hill. Carol loved when her kids would stop by the bakery with their friends and she would make them special little treats. She got into the business because she would give her friends cakes for holidays and special occasions and they just raved over these cakes. So much so that they started placing orders. Her baking was so good that they felt bad just taking it for free and insisted she earn something for her talents. And that's how it all started. Friends referred to the time that she opened her bakery as the summer of carrot cakes. Overall, it was just really cool seeing a new family make such an impression on this very traditional close-knit community. That was until the night of November 1st, 1994. Fred returns home from the synagogue to find his wife, 52-year-old Carol, lying on the floor in a pool of her own blood and he immediately calls 911. She was in a largely white room with her blood spired all over the walls and furniture. There were dents in her skull and her fingers were broken fighting back against the killer. Someone had bludgeoned Carol to death. The couple's son, Matthew, was an EMT at the time and he came racing down to the house once he heard the call over the radio. He tried to fight his way into the home, but two police officers had to snatch him up and carry him away. It was then that he knew his mother was dead and he couldn't even say goodbye to her. Fred didn't want Matt to see the carnage, but by the time he realized that Matt would probably hear the call, it was too late. Matt just turned around and walked down the street alone, trying to grasp the tragedy that had just unfolded in his parents' home. Fred didn't try to stop or follow him down the road. The scene didn't look like a robbery initially because nothing was out of place. No drawers were pulled out, no expensive jewelry was missing. Unfortunately, however, Carol had a habit of just shoving all the cash she made that day at the bakery into her purse, and that night she had a couple thousand dollars on her. Upon further investigation, the money that had been in her purse was no longer there. The community was so incredibly saddened by the news of Carol's death. This was the loss of such a cherished figure and leader in their town. The rabbi had to have been absolutely devastated, so everyone rallied around him. Fred actually resigned as rabbi from the temple about three months after Carol's death. Pretty much every congregate came to Carol's funeral. They were all wondering, who could kill her? We all loved her. Fred was at the temple on the night Carol was killed, so people immediately knew it, it wasn't him. Some even theorized that this could have been a targeted attack or a hate crime. Nothing else made sense. This couple had no known enemies. Yeah, they were wealthy and locally well-known, but like I said before, Cherry Hill is an A-plus town. The police department didn't have to deal with crimes like this back then. This was the only homicide there in the whole year of 1994. Cops were stationed around town to provide comfort to the members of the community who feared another senseless attack. There were no other suspects or leads for years. They were constantly hitting dead end after dead end. The story the police had gathered over time was this. The Newlander's daughter, Rebecca, was the last person to have interacted with Carol alive. They had a very close relationship but talked on the phone often, so Carol told Rebecca about a weird encounter she had in late October of 1994, very shortly before her murder. Carol was sitting in the car after her weekly meeting with the managers of her bakery when a man walked up to the window and claimed that the rabbi had sent him over to deliver some mail. He then hands Carol an empty, unsealed envelope. He then asks to use the bathroom, so Carol invites him into the house with her. He proceeds to go to the bathroom and then he leaves. Neither of the women knew what to make of that event. The following Tuesday, November 1st, Carol was on the phone with Rebecca again when someone knocks on the door. She says, oh, it's the bathroom man. Your dad told him to come over. When the police brought this up to Fred, he's just totally confused and claimed to have no idea what they or Rebecca were talking about. He had never sent anyone to the house with a message either of those nights. The situation just wasn't making any sense. As you probably have guessed, Fred wasn't as squeaky clean as his over-reputation would lead much of the community to believe. Rumors started going around since at least the mid-80s that Fred was a ladies' man that had a lot of affairs. He apparently had a habit of going from woman to woman, giving them unwanted compliments and being overly touchy. 
Unfortunately, this is an uncommon behavior for people with significant influence, especially over a select group of people. Boundaries are virtually non-existent, and respect for both their prospective partners and their families is just disregarded for the thrill that's just so easily attainable. Fred was no exception to the many people that let fame go to their head and lose their morals. Shortly after Carol's death, Fred called Sheila Goodman, the president of McCor Shalom, to notify her of the news. Upon hearing the news, Sheila, her husband Alan, and Mary Lee and Stuart Alperin, who were members of the congregation, all went to the Newlanders' home. When Sheila asked Fred what happened, Fred responded, it was those Columbians from the bakery. They would harm you or kill you for a nickel. Honestly, I didn't have racism on the bingo card of terrible character traits that Fred Newlander would have, but our expectations just can't be high for this man. He said that he warned Carol not to bring the cash home from the bakery like that. He also told these people, and his children for some reason, that he and his wife were in an open relationship, so his wandering eyes and hands were not an issue for her. But they thought that was weird because they knew Carol, and they couldn't imagine her being cool with an arrangement like that. A congregant also pointed out something odd that the rabbi did at his wife's shiva. A shiva, according to Jewish customs, is a mourning period that lasts seven days after someone's close family member has died. This practice allows families to process all the complicated emotions and phases of grief that, you know, people typically experience when a loved one dies, and hopefully aid in the overall healing of the family. One of the things that families do when they are observing the custom is to remove the chairs from their home and replace them with boxes or low stools. They do this to be literally closer to their loved ones by being closer to the ground, and also to distinguish this time of mourning from their regular lives. It's also said to represent low spirits or to be intentionally uncomfortable to show your condolences. Anyway, what was odd was that the rabbi was sitting all comfy in a big leather chair. No little stool. He was nice and cozy, all high up on that seat. Now... I know y'all had to have seen this coming, and if you didn't, then please listen to some of my other episodes or just listen to this one better, I don't know. The police learned that he always said a thing for Elaine Sonsini, a popular Philadelphia radio personality at the time. In fact, one of the first people he called after Carol died was Elaine. So yes, he had a mistress. Or more like a harem of mistresses, but this was the main side chick. Elaine tries to stonewall the police and does not want to tell them anything. She was a public figure and she had a solid reputation that she obviously wanted to uphold. What would it look like if it came out that she was messing around with a married rabbi? But more than that, an affair gave her a convincing motive in the police's eyes. If she couldn't provide them with any pertinent information that would make them think otherwise, she was going to be a suspect. Then, police let Elaine in on the open secret that she's not the only girlfriend or friend Newlander, and there are possibly four other women. The tone of the room took a quick 180 after this info was divulged. Elaine feels betrayed, embarrassed, here she was trying to cover up for a guy who wasn't even having an affair with just her. I guess she was just going to ignore the fact that she herself was a side piece and expected monogamy from a man who was already cheating, but okay, whatever. Fred wanted her to wait to spill everything until he got her a lawyer, but she said, no thanks, I'll get my own. Let's rewind a couple years. Elaine was married to a Jewish man with a terminal illness, and the rabbi came to the hospital to speak with her husband on his deathbed. A couple days later, after the husband had passed, Elaine and Fred had lunch because he claimed he wanted to console her. He hugged her as they were leaving and asked if he could come back soon, and within two weeks, they started hooking up. Fred had her twisted up because he got her to convert to Judaism when she was Catholic before. She was so deep in it that she started living her life by a different set of beliefs. They had been messing around for about two years straight, talking on the phone at least five times a day and meeting up at least three times a week at Elaine's house. She wanted Fred to divorce his wife, but he wasn't sure how that would affect his career in public image. How would it look for him 
If a rabbi suddenly divorced his adorable, lauded wife for somebody else, it would be obvious that he had been unfaithful. This seriously bothered Elaine, but Fred would leave her voicemail messages that their relationship would work out. He told her that a divorce would be too hard on his kids in the synagogue, and that he wished Carol's car would just roll into a river. Elaine had testified, he said to me that he just wished that she were gone. Poof. Just gone. That past summer, Fred was telling Elaine about some nightmares he was having about his wife. He allegedly stated that he dreamt that violence was coming to Carol. This disturbed Elaine and she was over being the mistress and wanted to end their relationship at the end of 1994. Sis had a deadline on this mess, but the rabbi wasn't having it. Fred declared that the two could happily be together by her birthday, which was December 17th. He also called her office less than two weeks after his wife got killed, letting her know that they would get married as soon as appropriately possible. That had to be an absolutely terrifying call to receive, but not that terrifying because they continued to sleep together until Elaine knew about the other women. With all these allegations, the police start questioning the congregants. A man named Pepe Levin was playing racquetball with a rabbi when Fred said, I wish I could come home to find my wife dead, spread out on the floor. Pepe responded that Fred was quote-unquote fucking crazy because he had this seemingly perfect life. A beautiful wife, wonderful kids, esteem in the community. Fred then turns around and asks him if he knew anybody that could do it. Pepe comes back with, ain't no way, leave me alone. After this encounter, Levin goes and tells his driver, Anthony Federici, that the rabbi wanted his wife to die. Federici testified that he was awestruck and didn't know what to say when he heard that. Levin also told his wife, who didn't take the claim seriously at the time because it just seemed so out of left field. The grand jury finally had enough evidence to indict Fred Newlander on September 10th, 1998. He was arrested on charges of planning his wife's murder. This would be nearly four years after her death, and the authorities still didn't have any concrete evidence tying Fred to the crime. On a wider scale, some congregants were upset that a notable Jewish man was being pinned as a murderer. A gregarious, well-liked man in a high-up position being accused of setting up a hit on his wife is not the kind of publicity that any marginalized group wants. For people who don't know much about the Jewish community or the ones who actively dislike it, this was a horrible story to have plastered all over the news. So he had the support of a lot of his congregants. From what they knew of Fred, although he was a known ladies' man, he was at least a man of generally high morals and ethics. And at the very least, not a killer. Fred apparently had a personal private investigator. I'm not sure if this is just something that all rich people have, but Fred was being protected by Leonard, or Len, Jenoff, a man from nearby Collingswood. Do you remember how I said Fred used to run support groups for people with substance issues? Well, Len was a recovering alcoholic who had met the rabbi in June of 1993. He looked to the rabbi for guidance and counseling. Len tried to clear Fred's name with the media because they were just so close. Fred had helped him through such a difficult period in his life. Len would talk to a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer named Nancy Phillips at a diner for like three hours at a time, trying to plead Fred's innocence so that he wouldn't be slandered in such a popular news source. Over time, Len and Nancy became good friends. Len felt like he could tell Nancy a secret because they had gotten so close. He tells her that he's the bathroom man. The plan was straightforward. Fred told Len that his wife would be home alone at a specific time so she could be murdered with no witnesses because her son worked as an EMT on Tuesday nights. The first attempt in October was the empty envelope, which was supposed to act as an excuse for being there. Len doesn't see her purse when he enters the home, so he just uses the bathroom and leaves. He also felt uncomfortable with the light outside the door because that would expose his face to Carol and any potential passersby. The rabbi says, okay, I'll make sure the light is off next time. Like I said before, Fred knew no one would suspect him because he made sure that he was at the temple when the murder was carried out. Len ropes in a man named Paul Michael Daniels, who was his roommate. On November 1st, the two men push their way into the house and start beating Carol with a pipe. They stage a scene like a robbery by taking the money from her purse, and then they leave. 
After telling Nancy all of this, he lets her know that he will contact the authorities. On May 1st, 2000, the authorities show up at the diner and Len confirms what they had suspected about Fred all along. Both Len and his roommate Paul Daniels are arrested with no physical evidence, but now Fred is charged with capital murder and the death penalty. During this time, Fred is out on bail and attempting to live his life as normal. Some people are still big fans of him, while others have turned their admiration into skepticism. By this point, many had left the congregation. It didn't feel right being taught from a sacred book by a man who potentially organized his wife's murder, but others would never accept even the possibility of his guilt. Some even said that the whole situation was just surreal. At one point, Fred approached a friend who was walking his dog. This guy had recently lost his wife due to a long-term illness. Fred walks up to the friend and says, I'm sorry for your loss. I know what it's like to lose a wife. <laughs> the, <f> the friend whips around and responds, the only difference is I nursed my wife for six years and you killed your wife. I'm actually surprised Fred survived the interaction because I think I personally would have just stopped existing right then. Aside from that, Fred is denying everything Len Genoff had said. He asserted in an interview, while sitting in the exact same room the murder occurred, his story is entirely baseless. I had nothing to do with the death of my wife. The case finally began on October 15th, 2001, which, fun fact, is my fiancé's birthday. Len tells the jury the same story he told Nancy Phillips at the diner. He was hired to kill Carol. In his testimony, Len said Fred was constantly asking him to kill his wife. He would allegedly say he wanted to come home one night to find his wife dead on the floor. According to an appeals court ruling in the case, Genov said the rabbi agreed to pay him $30,000 and to get him a job with Israel's spy agency, the Mossad, if he had murdered Carol. Len planned to pay Paul Daniels $18,000 from that $30,000. Len claimed to be a PI and also to have worked for the CIA, but he was known to be a pathological liar. He also said that he was a former FBI agent, a former police officer, a comrade in arms of President Ronald Reagan, and that he participated in the Iran-Contra affair. He would also tell people that he had tried three times to kill Fidel Castro for the CIA. Somehow Castro is relevant in two of my episodes already. Listen to episode two if you don't know what I'm talking about. In spring of 1984, Fred asked Len if he would kill for the state of Israel, and Led said that he would. He would do anything for Fred at this point. He had become the most important person in Len's life other than his own son. When Len thanked Fred for helping him with his addiction and financial troubles, Fred replied, maybe someday you could do a favor for me. He was stuck under Fred's thumb. Fred told Len that he wanted Carol dead ASAP no Rocky. They went through a handful of ways that she could be murdered, including using a gun to kill Carol and just wounding Fred outside a New York City theater, using a stun gun, a knife, killing her in the parking lot of a mall, and shooting Carol in Camden where she often had community service meetings. The most damning and devastating testimony came from the Newlander's own son, Matthew. 29-year-old Matt spoke about a horrible argument between his parents two days before the murder where Fred said he just wanted to divorce Carol. He was done with sneaking around and didn't want to put in the effort to reconcile and save their marriage. Carol, in a highly emotional state, ran downstairs to the basement, grabbed a couple of suitcases and threw them at Fred. She was pretty much just like, if you want to go, then just go right now. The following morning, Matthew asked Fred if he was moving out, but he refused to answer. But after some more arguing, Carol eventually comes and tells Matt that the two were going to work it out and Fred was not leaving. On the night of the murder, Fred told Matt, don't worry, everything will be fine. Don't worry about anything. Fred was completely clean and calm. This was not the expected reaction of a man whose wife was randomly bludgeoned to death. As we all know, everyone grieves differently, but I think coming home to your wife's bloody body on the floor could be, could warrant a little more of a reaction than that. Also, the fact that Fred didn't have any blood on him was disturbing to Matt. That means that he didn't even try to help Carol assess her condition in any way. 
During all of this, Matt wouldn't even refer to his father as his father or dad. He only called him Fred. Matt also said, I sat there and I watched him lie repeatedly and baldly during his testimony. Lies that perhaps may not even be evident, probably, to people watching, but lies that I knew because I was there. It really became cemented for me that a man who's innocent would need to tell untruths in this way. The rabbi's first trial ended in a mistrial. The jury was deadlocked on the eighth day of the trial and just could not agree. They were stuck at 9-3 in favor of conviction. The second trial was moved from Camden to Freehold in Monmouth County. Court TV had this case on non-stop and the local news coverage was just inescapable. They figured going about an hour and a half away would clear them of a biased jury because Freehold is more in the New York City metro area and their news stories, I guess, somehow wouldn't overlap. The trial picks back up in fall of 2002. Fred had none of his regular charisma and barely spoke a word. In his testimony, he said that he saw a body on the floor. He didn't say, I saw Carol or my wife on the floor, just a body. After being largely quiet, he had to melt them with his three kids in the front row. But as devastated as I imagine they were, the kids were the key witnesses in the case. The defense attacked the testimonies of the prosecution's witnesses because they believed that they all had beef with Fred and had something to gain from seeing his downfall or that they were being manipulated by police. Six of these witnesses were just straight up accused of lying on the stand. Fred's lawyer argued that Elaine only started cooperating with police when detectives told her that he was entertaining other women. She would have had a motive for bringing him down. He also argued that Pepe Levin, who is not only a racquetball player, but also an ex-con who was charged with federal fraud, didn't tell police about their weird conversation that they had until after police informed him that Fred had sold him an inferior Torah, which essentially meant that he was scamming him or ripping him off. Levin had initially told police that Fred hadn't said anything out of the ordinary to him. The defense overall asserted that the prosecution really only had Len's word in a handful of testimonies and circumstantial evidence. There was no concrete evidence tying Fred to the crime scene. The jury did not agree with the defense and found Fred Newlander guilty of organizing his wife's murder and he was sentenced to death. After a series of appeals, Fred's sentence was commuted to life in prison and he's currently in a prison in Monmouth County. 81-year-old Fred will have parole eligibility in June 2030. I'm not sure if he's gonna make it to that date though. Len and Paul took a plea bargain and served 14 years for their part in the murder and were released in 2014. Today, there are still more than 600 members in the McCor Shalom Temple. Some people still believe that Fred is innocent. Fred himself denies having anything to do with Carol's murder. To an extent, I can understand the community's denial. That's a really painful concept to grasp. The person who guided you in worship and helped you strengthen your bond with your God was actually just an awful person, living at complete odds with the messages that he was teaching. He was kind of a fraud. Another thing that made him an awful person was that he had started another relationship while he was on trial. So that's a little fun fact. One of the many parts of this trial that I found kind of sad was the hold that Fred had over Len. Len just wanted to feel important and valued. The rabbi was like a godlike figure to him, and his approval meant everything. He kept to his word that he would do anything for Fred. On top of the vicious portrayal to his wife on so many levels, and the emotional abandonment and disregard of his children and his community, the manipulation that Fred used on Len was really disturbing. This isn't to show like any sympathy towards Len because he was a grown man who could have easily just not killed Carol. He murdered an innocent woman just to be in good graces with someone and make some money, but in the bigger picture, this is horrible behavior for a spiritual leader to be exhibiting. While they were still together, Fred told Elaine the summer before Carol died that, that he predicted it was going to be a tumultuous fall. And a very tumultuous fall he had indeed. With that, I hope a lesson you guys have been learning over the course of these episodes is that you cannot blindly follow, believe, or trust 
anyone. People can present themselves in many different ways, and the way that you know them doesn't necessarily trump all the other faces that they put on. Always be skeptical and understand that everyone is a flawed person. And even if they're in a position of power or authority, or they're closely tied with something you care about, like, you know, a religion or just a, even just a band or a TV show, please don't be like Len and sacrifice everything just to please someone. And don't be like Elaine and cover up for someone just so they'll be with you. Nothing in this world is worth you. I obviously also advise you guys to not be like Fred either, but I'd like to believe that my listeners aren't like comic book villains. But anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast, and I will see you all next week. Goodbye!